The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening and welcome to our Behind the Headlines. Uh, it's um, Human Plus Technology Beyond COVID-19. Uh, you're all very, very welcome, especially everybody who's joining us uh, in the Zoom room, uh, as well as those who are on Facebook and uh, coming via Irish Central. Irish Central has been a great partner over the last three months and it's great to be working with you again this evening. We're going to have some fascinating talks tonight. Uh, everything from Zoom fatigue to virtual learning and education, machine learning and personalization and designing for the human. But a few introductions first. My name is Jane Olmeyer and I'm the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is our research institute in the arts and humanities at Trinity. Uh, where we do three things. We uh, support the excellence of the arts and humanities. We drive innovative approaches and interdisciplinarity. And I think you'll find this evening is a fabulous example of that. And the third thing we do is public humanities. And in this, our 10th anniversary year, we're extremely thrilled to have had such amazing uh, audiences from across Ireland and indeed around the world. Now tonight's a rather sad night for me because it will be my last time chairing a behind the headlines discussion as the director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. My five year term has come to an end and I'll step down at the end of the month, but I'm handing over to a wonderful colleague, uh, Eve Patton, who will be bringing behind the headlines to you uh, in the autumn. Tonight marks the 25th behind the headlines discussion since I took over as director in 2015. And that means um, we've reached about 5,000 people uh, in person during those conversations and many thousands more online. Our audiences have joined us from across Dublin, Ireland, and since we've gone virtual from around the world and thousands more uh, listen to the recordings on the websites. The uh, uh, Behind the Headlines discussion series, as you probably know by this point, draws on the long-term perspectives of arts and humanities research to reflect on current issues in the media. It aims to deepen our understanding and to combat polarization, something that we need to do more than ever, uh, uh, given what's going on in the world at the moment. Uh, the Behind the Headlines is made possible uh, by a very generous gift from the John Pollard Foundation and I'd like to express my warm and heartfelt thanks to Stephen Vernon for all of the support that he has given uh, uh, this series. We couldn't have done it without you Stephen so thank you very much. This is the fourth Behind the Headlines that we've held online in the online only format uh, since uh, Trinity closed its doors on the 13th of March. Let's hope the technology behaves itself this evening and especially this evening because uh, tonight's Behind the Headlines marks a very exciting chapter in our partnership with the ADAPT Research Centre for Digital uh, Media and Technology. Together, the Hub and ADAPT are celebrating the launch 
of the Human Plus program, which is a major new research initiative co-funded by the European Commission's Horizon 2020 Marie Curie Actions. This five-year fellowship program will seek to forge a human-centric approach to technology informed by the insights of the arts and humanities and the technological breakthroughs of computer science and engineering. We're also very keen to work in collaboration with enterprise as well as cultural institutions, NGOs, government departments. So if anybody out there um, uh, likes the sound of what they're hearing, please do get in touch. Uh, the details are on our website. Uh, which is humanplus.ie. Now it takes a village to secure one of these prestigious grants and I just would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the hard work of colleagues in the hub and ADAPT and the support we've already had from Enterprise and from the Marie Curie office which is part of the Irish Universities Association and funded by the Irish Research Council. I think we're still recovering from the fact that uh, this was ranked second in Europe, which is extraordinarily uh, uh, unusual for the humanities. Anyway, to business. Why does this topic matter? COVID-19 has brought into sharp focus the implications of technology on our lives um, and has accelerated the move uh, online for work, education, and much, much more. But even before the pandemic, the nature of the human experience, its diversity, its culture had been challenged and tested and some would argue enriched as well due to rapid developments in artificial intelligence, machine learning and big data. What's very clear to us is that these challenges can't be addressed by one industry or one discipline alone and hence the Human Plus programme. And tonight we're delighted uh, to bring uh, to you an interdisciplinary panel and voices from enterprise. Before I introduce our panel though, we're going to do a poll as we always do. Um, and it's gonna pop up in your screens now. Uh, what we would like are your thoughts uh, on whether technology goes far enough in taking the human perspective into account. So do you believe technology today takes enough of a human-centered approach? So we'd really appreciate it if you could fill the poll out and uh, we'll share the results at the end of the discussion. The format tonight is as it always is. Each speaker will uh, speak for nine minutes uh, and then we'll open up to Q&A. Uh, we'd like you to submit your questions throughout the discussion uh, using the Q&A function on your screen and we'll read them out at the end. But do say something about yourself. Uh, tell us where you're from uh, and uh, uh, why you're here. Those listening on Facebook can also write a question in the comments section and we'll monitor these and we'll try to take as many as we can. Uh, for the special occasion of the launch of Human Plus tonight, we'll be tweeting at Human Plus TCD, plus we'll use the hashtags uh, Human Tech and Hub Matters. Uh, these are all in the chat function. Okay, to business, to our fabulous panel. I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. And our first panelist this evening is my colleague, Jennifer Edmund. She's the Associate Professor of Digital Humanities and Director of Strategic Projects for the Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences uh, at Trinity. She's the co-director of the Trinity Centre for Digital Humanities. And she's the president of DARIA, which is the European uh, research infrastructure for digital humanities. So you're very welcome, Jennifer. Thank our you very much. Speaker, 
this evening is uh, Vincent Wade, or Vinny as we all know him, is the Director of the ADAPT Centre for Digital Media Technology and Chair of Computer Science in the School of Computer Science and Statistics Trinity. Uh, Vinny and I are the PIs on Human Plus, but in fact we've been collaborating since 2006 uh, when we worked together on the 1641 Depositions Project and I'm particularly delighted to be working with Vinny uh, again and look forward uh, to the next five years. Our third panellist is Anne Devitt. Anne is Assistant Professor of Modern Languages and Director of uh, Research at the School of uh, Education in Trinity and the Academic Director for Learnovate, our Research and Innovation Centre in Learning Technologies. Anne, it's great you're with us. And last but not least, I'd like to welcome Lorna Ross, who is the Chief Innovation Officer with BHI Health and Wellbeing. And until recently, she was the group uh, director at the Fjord Design Studio inside Accenture's global R&D centre, The Dock, where she founded and led the Human Insights Lab, and that's where we got to know uh, Lorna, but it's lovely uh, to welcome you back here this evening, Lorna. Now, without further ado, if we could go back to Jennifer, uh, who will kick off the discussion um, uh, uh, by looking at, uh, by asking whether we're all suffering from Zoom exhaustion. Jennifer, <laughs> over to you. Brilliant. Thanks, Jane. And thanks, everybody, for tonight. Um, I hope you haven't had too many of these meetings today because there really is this question around Zoom fatigue. I mean, there's no question that technology in the course of the COVID uh, time has allowed us to continue to work, to learn, to connect, but it hasn't been a seamless transition in part because the technology wasn't ready for us, but largely because we weren't ready for it. Um, Whenever a new technology comes in, we go through what's called an incunabular time. This is a word that goes back to printing. And it means that sometimes we try and do the old things with the new technology and it doesn't turn out very well. And the images and the models we have in our mind for how to use virtual meeting spaces, they're not great. They don't match what we have to hand. If you think about it, it's almost like looking at a, at a television program or a Netflix movie and there's no director. I'm not a trained actor. I don't quite know how to deliver well and there's nobody focusing on my face when you need to focus on my face. So we thing called zoom fatigue and it's a lot about how our brain processes visual and audio information you can't read my verbal and my visual cues very well you can't read my body language your central vision might be a little confused because of all those little squares that have different people in them um, you're suffering probably from something called continuous partial attention where you're getting drawn off into different places and of course you may even be looking at yourself kind of fixing your hair while you're trying to be in a meeting all of these things take us away from the goals we have for being in meetings but at the same time we know that the virtual meetings aren't going to go away even when the virus does because even before this great experiment we found ourselves thrown into, we already were talking about carbon neutral and, and non-carbon conferences and the fact that travel for conferences was something that wasn't as democratic or as sustainable as we wanted our meetings and our societies to be. So how can we make virtual meetings better and how can we actually use this technology in a way that preserves the things we want and that we can do virtually, but actually allows us to focus in our face-to-face -face meetings in the future on the things we can only do face-to-face. -face. So this for me, strangely enough, was a digital humanities question. Not just because we have a, a desire to extend into all sorts of places, but 
in the digital humanities, we have a number of things that really let us look at this question in a particular way. And I think actually that's one of the reasons why the Human Plus program is so exciting because it's harnessing this kind of humanities technology exchange. So what kinds of things did we draw on looking at this as a humanities problem? First of all, we have these things called the scholarly primitives, which is approach we've used for about 20 years to break down scholarly work processes into component parts that we can then look at for their value. We also have the engagement of people coming from theater practice and backgrounds from the arts. And that's really actually crucial because there's no one who understands the importance of a live interaction as well as somebody who works within a theater and depends upon connections between actors, connections between an actor and an audience. And finally, we have this approach called critical making. Basically what it means is that we learn while we build something and then we analyze at the same time. And while we may be building any number of different kinds of artifacts, while we may be having any kind of certain design effect, we always look at them from a humanities perspective. So when I, like you, as president of this European research infrastructure, found myself with an annual event we had to delay, um, we decided to take these assets we had and create something that we thought would be a little bit different. And we called it a virtual exchange event. We didn't call it a meeting. We didn't call it a conference. We didn't know what to call it, to be quite honest. And the goal was to take the scholarly primitives approach, look at what we needed and wanted from scholarly meetings of the meetings that we have, but I think this can apply to any kind of meeting, whether it's in a business or any other context, a learning uh, exchange or anything like that. And what we tried to do is look at the challenges we were facing differently with this goal of being able to say, okay, that's something we can definitely do virtually. This is something that's missing. And it's interesting because we very quickly came to become very critical of some of the eco-conferencing literature because there's a lot of emphasis on formalizing things, documenting them, concretizing them, making them asynchronous. And uh, one quote I love is to scale networking so it doesn't rely on chance or alcohol. We really like chance and alcohol. That was a, a sort of a business guru's perspective. What we found when we broke the meetings down was that less than half of the activities that people were really looking for in meetings were actually about the information and the formal exchange. It was much more about um, the serendipitous, the unexpected, the personal, the things that were empathy driven, and the things that had to do with how we work in particular spaces, how our bodies move, how our body's movement in spaces actually helps us remember and process information, what we feel. So what we realized is that for us, our professional meetings are not just about building minds and careers and networks. They're really about how we, we learn. They're really about building our brains and our identities. And we lose this at our peril. So we did a very different kind of meeting. And I think that Francesca has put the link to some of the assets associated with this meeting uh, in the chat if you want to take a look at the kinds of things we did. Um, and really, it was about trying to take some of those goals of community and serendipity and find different ways to enliven them other than just saying, right, we're all in a virtual space. Let's look at each other and try and try and connect. And I think we can extract some learnings here. And I, I think we can put them into, you know, if you want to have a good virtual meeting and if you ever want to have a great one. If you want to have a good virtual meeting, and I think this Behind the Headlines series is a really great exemplar of what you need to do. And if you saw what goes on behind the scenes, you'd appreciate it even more. You don't want to make it long, keep it short. You can't do a day long meeting on Zoom. So, and vary the format. Uh, try and make sure that you're staying. For the Daria event, we stayed at two hours and we had a different format for every half hour. 
Second, make the ground rules crystal clear. If you want people to turn off their notifications so they're not distracted by other kinds of work, if you want them to mute their mics, if you want them to know where to chat, if you want them to raise their hands in a certain way, you have to tell them because every system they use, and I may use 10 different video conferencing systems in the course of a week, every system is just that little bit different. And also remind people to be kind because one of the things that happens is that the technology can frustrate people and there can be a, a sort of an angry relation. And that's another reason for kind of my next rule, which is to keep the tech simple, especially if people aren't used to the tools. Um, our theater practitioner talked about productive chaos. You don't get productive chaos online, you just get chaos. You can't build from it because there's a very narrow rope ladder between you and the people you're talking to. Um, so that fragility can lead to frustration, it can really lead to cognitive overload. So make sure you rehearse, keep it simple, and have people in the background to help people who might be frustrated and need kind of both technical and emotional support. So that's for the good meeting. If you wanna go for the great meeting, First of all, think about serendipity. How can you help people to actually discover and learn and feel a part of this? You'll see in our Daria event, we had, we had a whole exhibition space where people could wander. There was no requirement to be there, but just a matter of this is a way people could um, get themselves ready to think about the ideas we wanted to discuss. We also brought in some content from the registration as a part of the work we were looking at. Be careful of power dynamics. People who might be excluded in a face-to-face -face meeting will be even farther from you in a virtual one. Find ways to include the people who might be at one remove. Um, and finally, if you want something to happen, um, you have to approach it with intention and creativity. Your location can't do that for you. So you need to bring that excitement in a different way. Um, and this is work. And this is the work you're doing when you're not planning the conference dinner. So there's going to be things that you can do around random chats, around pub quizzes, around things that bring people to a kind of a social listening rather than an individual listening. Some people will hate it, but most people will love it. Or most people at least find that they were someplace memorable and something that helped them learn. Now, most people loved our Daria event. I think one person didn't like it. And one of my favorite quotes was someone who said, it helped them to experience new ways to be in a digital space. So I hope maybe you can take some inspiration from it and find new ways for you and your groups to be together in virtual spaces. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Actually, that's great to hear uh, uh, such a positive experience. So thank you very, very much indeed. Um, Vinny. Can we turn to you now? Thanks, Jane. I'm just unmuting. Um, it's great following Jennifer because that's a really good concrete example of where we're exploring tonight, which is really that you know, we are now living in a digitally mediated world. We are seeing this fusion of the physical that we live in and the digital that we share and that we interact across. Um, and certainly in the last few years, we're seeing now the, the doubling of that with this import of AI technologies and machine learning and the other um, state-of-the-art technologies that computer science is introducing. And what that's happening is we're seeing a lot more automation. We're seeing a drive to the automation of, of processes, automation of work, automation even of, of some of our leisure activities and, and scheduling and so forth. And what that's happening is that we're seeing the pace increase all the time. Um, and at times it feels that the humans are somewhat being um, thought, um, not thought about enough, being left out of the loop a little bit. Um, 
we're seeing that industry is focusing on this, but we're seeing that industry are focusing on things like productivity, uh, progression of automation, manufacturing and supply chains and administration. And we're looking at things like reducing costs, um, reducing the carbon footprint, um, producing uh, things with much greater uh, access for, uh, for others, or much greater access to services. Um, and whilst all this has got really good parts, they do have that negative of, well, are the, is the human being left behind? But it's not all the computer scientists' fault. I just want to point that out. It's, uh, it's also the circumstances. So for example, the pandemic itself has propelled us into the Zoom type conferences that we are in today. Uh, you know, one of the comments I hear is that, you know, it took a pandemic to get all the universities in the world to actually go online. Um, it's phenomenally uh, changing the way we are interacting at the moment. And even as we go back to the new better, as people are calling it, um, we're still going to have a lot more digital interaction because we've tasted it, some of it works. And the argument is that some of it is not working. And I thought that Je uh, Jennifer's comments about the, the Zoom meetings were really well put in terms of where the weaknesses are. So we know that technology can provide us the benefits. We've seen it in healthcare, we've seen it in, in manufacturing, we're seeing it in uh, communication, natural language processing and so forth. But we also want to ensure, well, what does that mean to ensure that the human isn't left behind? The human isn't just an artifact of the automation or the artifact of the digital reality. Um, and I think that one of the things that we've been trying to do within the ADAPT Center and, and now with, with Human Plus in collaboration with the Digital Long, the Long Room Hub is really look at this human-centric technology development. And really at the heart of this is how do we co-create for the better of humanity? How do we co-create with technologists and engineers? It's not enough for them just to know about the climate or know about human interaction or know about these things, but to actually collaborate with the experts in those fields to actually co-create new solutions. Um, and what we think in terms of, of areas in which this is really gonna happen, I can think in terms of really looking at aspects to do with education, aspects to do with healthcare, aspects to do with communication. And if I take one or two examples, and I only have a couple of minutes, so I'll just take one or two examples that we were working on over the years. I said, I've been working with Arts Humanities for, for many years. And one area that we've been, I've been working heavily was in personalization. And particularly, not the personalization that perhaps you're more familiar with in Amazon, where you, know, you get recommended things because you happen to bought something else. That, that would be the low hanging fruit. Really here we're talking about actually having interventions that are just for you in whatever task you're doing, whatever you're trying to accomplish, that really motivates you and helps you get there. So in terms of education, and I'm, I've been working in the area of, of uh, e-learning for a number of years now, we looked at how could personalization really change the way our, grad, our students on campus actually learn. Um, in order to tackle this, we decided not to just go with technology, but to actually seek out educational psychologists to really work together in a much broader uh, team, how we can actually look at this, how can we actually look at what the triggers are, what are the motivations, what are the underlying theory, and what would be the better in, uh, innovations. It's really interesting because in a number of companies and, and entities that have tried to do personalization really haven't had a lot of effect, a lot of good experiences. But with the collaborative team across the disciplines, we've really begun to identify what really matters from a learner's perspective. And in our particular, I'm, I'm talking about now in, 
in third level education because that's where we've done most of the work. And what it did was dispelled a number of myths around you know, uh, personalization. So for example, adapting to a learner's preferred learning style has next to no impact, small to almost none. Adapting to a particular media preference type, again, unless there's a disability involved, really there isn't actually a huge impact. Where there is a huge impact is an appreciation of that learner's prior knowledge. Where there is a huge impact is being able to empower that learner so that they can control and so that they can have part ownership of the learning experience. And what we've done in multiple tests and, and, and developed um, multiple initiatives on this is to actually look at how this can be best deployed. Again, some people listening might say, okay, but that's very nice research and, and academics getting together and working, but you know, does it have any effect in, in, in the real world? Well, actually, one company that span out out of that research was a call Empower the User, which is an e-learning company looking at, at the very high end of, 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 of uh, learning skills, which is communication skills, what they sometimes call soft skills, which are actually really difficult to learn and can only be learned through practice. Um, in that space that they've now become a market leader in their te the technology that built on what we developed initially and then taken further. Um, and they have now in a small Irish company are selling across Europe, across Asia, across uh, the US uh, into the, the top companies looking at providing a platform for this new style of learning. Another example of a spin out that, that, that using the ADAPT technologies uh, was in the papers only yesterday, which is called Iconic. Iconic is a machine translation, intelligent machine translation. It, it's recently been acquired for 20 million um, yesterday, the announcement. Um, specifically focusing on the tougher end of translations, which is in the area of legal and healthcare. Um, but again, the genesis of that research was in that co-creation with linguists, with translators and with technologists to be able to build solutions for the future. One project which I, I, I'd like to just name check because it, it, it's one that's just getting going and, 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 and uh, I think of of national importance is the work in the project called, some of you might know it already, called Beyond 2022. As you may know, the exp an explosion and fire in the forecourts back in 1922 destroyed the public records office and with it seven centuries of Irish collective memory. Beyond 2022 project is a collaboration between uh, historians, um, arts, humanities, and technology in, in the ADAPT Centre to really look at, can we build a virtual record treasury for the Irish history? Can we build an open access virtual reconstruction of the record treasury that was destroyed in 1922? It's an international activity. Um, we're linking to museums and, and uh, galleries across the world who actually have copies of some of the artifacts that were destroyed. And by reconvening those digitally, by recreating a 3D representation of the lost archive and being able to experience it in 3D, experience it in, in new ways in a digital media, but to be able to actually rediscover some of our history in this way is what the project is trying to do. There is no hope of trying to build without a co-creation process. The spin out and the kind of other impact will be how we can actually interact in a 3D artifacts and how we can actually 
use new technology like digital companions and chatbots to be able to interact and navigate our way through the uh, archives. Jay mentioned Human Plus and we're really excited about the, the, the program. The program is allowing us to really build uh, new fellowships for 18 uh, invited um, international scholars to come into the uh, Long Hub and the Adapt Centre and across Trinity to look at some of these issues that we have in the co-creation of new ideas and technology. If I take some examples, looking at ethics and digital consent in the modern world becomes really important, whether you're social media, whether you're a commercial company, whether you're um, working in, in, in digital archives. What does it actually mean to have that? What are the ethical issues? How do we data manage and govern the data and how do we ensure privacy? We all talk about chatbots at the moment, but do they really chat? At the moment, chatbots are basically answering dumb questions for you or turning on your music or not turning on your lights when you want it, but maybe at the third time of asking. Um, but the future is we will be talking more to robots and how do we actually do that properly? There's no way we can do that with just technology. It has to be a co-creation approach. And then finally, social media, creativity and storytelling. These are becoming more and more important as we go forward in the digital, in the digital realm, but we need the co-creation of new ideas. Co-creation will, will, will help us address the problems more accurately and not get it wrong as often. It won't necessarily always guarantee us the right answer, but it will help us get there eventually. Thanks. Jane, I think it's wrong. Yeah, thank you so much, Vinny. Uh, really, really just fabulous. Um, thank you. Anne, over to you. Thanks, Jane. Um, so it's great for me to follow Jennifer and Vinny there because they're looking at, uh, I suppose, what's the essential component in, uh, in technologies that, that can make us feel human when we're in a, a kind of a technological environment. Um, so I'm gonna talk about learning and technology in particular, um, focusing on, I suppose, on the formal education system of schools and institutions. And it's really useful uh, to consider what are the opportunities and challenges of using technology for learning at this very moment when we're coming to the end of an extremely strange academic year. Um, I'm gonna take a, an ecological perspective of learning here. So taking that wide view of the learner in their context of learning. We all know that learning doesn't happen in a vacuum. It, it takes place in those many, many interactions that we have, that learners have with their environment, with their physical environment and their social environment and their cultural environment. So, for example, an infant uh, learns how to communicate through interacting with their caregiver or a language learner uh, learns aspects of a new language by interacting with a, a platform like JC Quest or Duolingo. Um, and learning is mediated by elements and individuals in the learning environment. And it's in and through these interactions that we learn. So in the context of formal education, it's the role of us as educators to set up the learning environment and to facilitate opportunities for learning. Um, it is not to deliver learning as though it were some kind of a pizza that needs no more engagement from the learner than just opening a door. So John Dewey back in 1916 wrote that education is uh, about the enterprise of supplying the conditions which ensure growth. 
it's not about filling people up with facts or any banking model of education. So this is not a new idea. John Dewey was writing 100, 100 years ago. Vygotsky was working on sociocultural theory in the 1930s. Um, the education system maybe has been a little slow to catch up with the theory, but in recent times, education systems have very much embraced this model of learning of curriculum and uh, in their curriculum and pedagogy in lots of different cultural contexts. And in Ireland, um, recent developments in primary and post-primary education uh, seek to embed this active and engaged approach to teaching and learning. And we can see this in lovely play-based primary classrooms that are very far cry from the tight rows of, uh, of pupils in classrooms uh, from years ago. And we can see it in a really well implemented, active and engaged junior cycle classroom in post-primary. So where does technology fit in with all of this? Technology can be a hugely valuable uh, element and a really critical part of the learning environment. It can facilitate interactions that wouldn't normally be possible. It can afford learning opportunities that might never have been available to people before. And as Vinnie said earlier, though, it, you know, in some ways, it's not even useful to, to make a distinction between a, a digital and a non-digital learning environment anymore. So many of our um, daily activities, and that includes learning activities, uh, are mediated by technology and the digital and the non-digital interpenetrate continuously in our lives. So it's not a question about deciding whether to use technology or not. It should be about deciding which aspects of a rich learning environment, including any available technology um, that we can use to achieve uh, a learning goal. So in some cases, the most appropriate technology might be Lego or a pen and paper. Uh, and in other cases, it might be a computer simulation or a, a personalized learning environment or an online collaborative space. Uh, and the technology in some ways uh, is neutral. What's really important is how we use it as learners and educators to achieve our goals, our learning goals. In terms of the, the for formal education system and, and embedding technology in this kind of seamless way, um, within the learning environment. This is certainly part of policy at a national level and uh, European and international levels. And the National Digital Strategy for Schools sets out this vision for um, using technology for learning in a very integrated way within uh, an engaged and active classroom. Now, up until March 2020, um, the pace of change wasn't as fast maybe as it might have been and that's not just nationally but internationally uh, because change is hard and embedding technology effectively in a learning environment can be difficult to achieve but um, with the COVID-19 shutdown on the 12th of March suddenly the pace of change accelerated and everyone is forced online in their education systems and it's estimated that about 90% of the world's students have been affected by school closures. So 90% of people have essentially been moved online. Um, so this experience is very likely to transform um, what teaching and learning looks like in the coming years. And so it's really timely now to take a moment and look at what it is we have achieved uh, 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 as a, you know, a global education system, if you like, uh, and to consider where the change has brought us and um, 
how we can prepare for what's likely to be a, a bit of an uncertain future, at least next academic year. So to this end, um, funded by the Trinity COVID Response Fund, uh, colleagues in the School of Education and Trinity Access, myself, uh, Avin Bray, Joanne Banks, Eilish Nikorkra and Jen McGuire Donahue, we designed a survey for teachers based on the principles of um, universal design for learning. So neutral as to technology or not technology. And we asked about the pedagogical processes that uh, teachers and learners uh, have been able to engage in during the COVID shutdown and what has been more or less possible at this time. We asked about challenges and opportunities and how and where technology has been used. So very preliminary analysis of these 1100 plus uh, responses have given us some interesting results that tie into what Jennifer and Vinnie have both been talking about. So teachers typically don't you know, there is mention certainly of uh, technology being a little, you know, a challenge, but that is by no means the majority of teachers. The main challenge has been student engagement. And as a parent myself, uh, this result is not a bit surprising. Um, it's a very odd time and keeping people engaged in the learning process is really difficult for schools, for parents and for the young people themselves. But if we dig a little bit deeper into the data and we look at what kind of practices uh, teachers have found more possible or less possible during the shutdown, teachers have said, yeah, that they find it more, they're better able to, you know, use different kinds of media to share information with students, which is a hugely valuable uh, uh, thing from a universal design for learning perspective, allow more people different kinds of access to material. But the biggest decrease for teachers has been in the ability to foster collaboration and community among the students. So the majority of engagements that are going on with students is around sharing materials and, and sending feedback. So a kind of transaction around learning. And this is very definitely valuable. But if we are looking into an autumn of blended learning, we just need to do better. Um, in this early analysis, we have a profile of um, students who are less engaged and teachers who find it harder to engage their students. So, you know, on March 12th, when suddenly every learner lost their familiar social context for learning, um, they lost more than just connecting with their buddies uh, during break time. Uh, in that need that we had to move online really quickly with very little notice and you know very intense pressure, um, the focus has been on yes continuity of learning, but continuity of learning in terms of content uh, much of the time. And it's clear that what we need to do, uh, you know, in the months ahead, is that we have to have continuity of engagement and interaction for learning also. This is particularly the case where students may have been more at risk of not engaging with school already. So the students who before COVID were, you know, not engaging so well with school after COVID, they're not engaging at all. You know, there is, so we, we really need to address this. And as educators, we have to learn to bring ourselves online and we bring our relationships online with us and bring our interactions online so that we don't move backwards in terms of reverting to some model of learning that's just about passively filling our learners with content. 
Thank you very much, um, Anne, for some very important uh, insights. Much appreciated. Thank you indeed. So, Lorna, last but not least, over to you. Thanks, Jane. Um, so, I uh, just wanted to thank everyone for this is such a great opportunity to um, hopefully, um, I, you know, it's, it's fun to be invited as a designer to kind of bring a design perspective. And I think it's essential, you know, I know that the Human Plus program is really, you know, trying to incorporate the ideas of creativity. So I hope I can do a good job here representing uh, the kind of creative community. Um, I'm going to read um, from some notes because I typically, um, and my mom is calling me, <laughs> um, I typically use slides. So um, let me talk a little bit about design. So when you train as a designer, you understand, sorry, one sec, you understand that your role is to shape the artifacts and that most accurately reflect the culture of a time. <clears throat> Designers are known to be the kind of keepers of a material culture. You know, if you walk into a museum, the artifacts that are preserved there, they're the documents of a material culture, just as if you, the contents of a library or catalogs of our academic culture. Um, these artifacts, these material culture artifacts have a role and it's cultural, it's social, it's economic, and it's political. Uh, we have a kind of a saying in design, um, and it says, you know, um, we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. They shape our behaviors. So I think any conversation about humans and technology, it really needs to start with acknowledging this really intimate relationship that we have with the objects that we craft. Yeah, things we build, they're significant because they exist, first of all, in our imagination. So they are of us. Um, we have, you know, our evolution is expressed in our capacity to build and to plan what to build. And that's how we control our environment. You know, when you think about, you know, evolution, adaptation, we adapt our environment to us. We don't adapt ourselves to it. So human evolution and the significance of the tools is the advantage that they offer to us to outsource a lot of activity. Uh, let me just, sorry. The things we adopt and also the things that we use at scale, which is even more significant, they become culturally significant as they represent a kind of consensus. Um, these artifacts, they punctuate our, our evolution with evidence of a coherent and collective vision which is often what we think about or is experienced as culture. So in many ways, tools become the engines for culture. And as a designer, it's not, you know, success is not only building something that's considered useful, but is something that becomes culturally significant. But mostly we build because we want to control things. Um, again, and this is obviously it's linked to survival instincts, but also an biological fragility. Uh, humans spend an awful lot of time trying to understand things, but we do it mostly so that we can control things. Science helps us understand things and then technology helps us control them. Uh, our obsession with control, I would call it obsession, coupled with our vivid imagination has driven us to be obsessed with problem solving. I think the reason that technology is so important to us culturally and economically is because we value problem solving so much. Think about how many brands have built their success on naming a problem and solving it, even if we were not aware of the problem before. 
Our imagination is both a curse and a blessing. We can imagine what's not, what is not, and as such, it's the source of all creativity, and I personally value it so much. But it also drives a lot of our dissatisfaction. Our imagination and our ability to create is equal only to our appetite to control. We're obsessed with novelty, and so we equate change with progress. I've seen from my experience working in what I call the change industry, which essentially is innovation. I've worked in innovation my whole career, is that um, change is not always a sign that things are getting better. Curiously, the source of much human anxiety is change. Perhaps it's the speed of change that is so incompatible for humans. Uh, change is happening at machine speed, not human speed. As Kevin Kelly put it, <clears throat> our ability to invent new things far outpaces the rate we can civilize them. So we're a culture built on aspiration. Um, I know this all too well as a designer. We understand that when we design, we design not for how we are, but how we wish to be. In my own career, I've seen the shift from designing things that people want to designing design to make people want things. Technology says make the world a better place. It's good, but it could be better. You're happy, but you could be happier. The narrative is based in an enduring sense of longing and a conviction that things are qu not quite what they could be. I began my career working in the fashion industry and quickly understood the cultural significance of clothing and its role in transforming the human body. Clothing is not just for adornment, but more to experiment with adaption and as such could be considered a technology. Indeed, the containment industry, which is the term, of the, you know, in the, of the Victorian era sought to contort the female form into an idealized and impossibly artificial version of femininity. So this collision of the body and technology, which I, I know well from my work, has never been more evident to me than while I worked myself in the defense industry, probably about 20 years ago now. Um, this is perhaps the place where you'll witness the most extreme exploration of human adaption in an attempt to push the limits of physical, cognitive, and psychological endurance, the body of the soldier becomes host to a layer of art, artifice and invention of synthetic shell. As humans, we continue to live embodied and bounded, despite persistent attempts to escape this humility. Every generation in every culture shares this urge, and much of technology that we develop serves this goal. I would argue that we have finally succeeded. Were I to remind you of the hours that you have spent in the last couple of weeks on Zoom or WebEx, you would probably agree. We live largely disembodied lives, mediated by technology, isolated from nature, and this trend is only likely to accelerate. Social media and the ever-expanding identities that we propagate there are limitless, uninhibited by our embodied experience. The current pandemic may perhaps have reoriented us to our experience as biological organisms, but likely has only galvanized our determination to retreat. So I've worked in tech and innovation cultures my entire career and have benefited from this kind of ubiquitous sense of confidence and heroism within those cultures. You know, coming from design, 
which is typically crippled with insecurity and self-doubt, I used to wonder what the origins of this confidence is. Much of what characterizes tech cultures came out of the defense industry during the Second World War and subsequently the Cold War and the arms race. As a backdrop of war, the tech industry propagated a culture of rapid experimentation and risk-taking, which was highly effective. With such urgent imperative, the capacity to move fast and break things or ask for forgiveness, not permission, was celebrated. A recent experience discussing the value of the humanities in technology, particularly the significance of philosophy and ethics, I was met with the familiar resistance. Yes, but it will just slow us down. So we know where the origins of urgency in tech come from, but why has it been so successful and successfully preserved? I want to finish here considering where we are in our relationship with technology now as humans and where we're heading. So I think everyone would agree technology is not inherently bad. If you know what you want in life, technology can help you get it. If you don't know what you want, it will all too easily shape your aims for you. Like it or not, we're living through an era of mass distraction. While the pursuit of happiness is hard, the pursuit of distraction is not. In a recent study of technology in the home, the sentiment reported has shifted dramatically from one of distrust to one steeped in guilt. The era of servant tools are over. The tools that we now build rival us in aspects of our own intelligence and awareness. Our relationship with the things we build is at an unprecedented inflection point. We no longer control them, and indeed we have diminishing capacity to understand them. Our tools are becoming opaque and obscure, while they are also embedded and ubiquitous. Ambient is another word for invisible. Machines are talking to machines. We're designing the human out of the loop. With the rise of autonomous and ubiquitous technologies, we see UI and UX morph as a discipline into design for disappearing interfaces or design for omission. An idea common to most innovation is that, is that change is often more evident in the absence of things. And terms like frictionless promote the obvious benefits of automation. For generations, we've taught humans to understand technology and how to use it. Moving forward, we'll really teach technology to understand us. When tools are autonomous, any interface is largely gratuitous and it's possibly even sentimental. The idea of human-machine symbiosis embodied in the principles of the centaur systems are widely considered for the harmony they promote, but are unlikely to be the place that we end up. The tools that we're building run too fast. They run at machine speed for this symmetry to be maintained. Generally, organizations put a lot of energy into exploring the future of technology and they put a lot less energy into exploring the future of humans. They typically skew towards a kind of tech optimism and they forget to consider the likelihood that the future may be shaped by people as much as it is shaped by technology. 
Human Insights Lab that Jane mentioned earlier was an experiment last year with the Trinity Long Room Hub to understand people's deepening relationship with technology and how it's fundamentally linked to our human evolution. Acknowledging the general absence of a historical or philosophical perspective in tech, in tech cultures, we wanted to offer insights on how human behavior, belief, and even our instincts are shaped by the tools that we use. Understanding this deep connection holds the key to shaping technologies which we believe build trust, promote equity, and act ethically. More than ever, I believe collaborations such as this are really essential to industry and to enterprise. We're living in a golden age of awareness and enlightenment, but it's largely not human. I say this fully aware that this may make us uncomfortable and indeed some may disagree. However, I want to call out the importance of programs such as Human Plus and the unique critical perspective it brings to the human machine story. Thank you. Thank you, Lorna. Again, just another cracking presentation, bristling with insights. So the questions are pouring in thick and fast. And just to encourage you to submit your questions, we're going to, over the course of the next half hour, get through as many as we possibly can. Um, however, I think we're going to have our poll results. Um, uh, is that right, Francesca? You're going to put the poll results on the screen for us now? Yeah, oh, there we are. So the question was, do you believe technology today takes enough to, uh, uh, of a human-centered approach? Yes, what's that, 9%? No, there you go, Lorna. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure, so uh, to, to your point, um, uh, I think that, uh, that's it. Uh, so thank you very much, everybody who responded uh, 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 to that. So our first question, and as I say, there are many, so you, you know, forgive me for, I'm going to exercise a little bit of chair's prerogative here. But before I go into the questions, thank you, Mary Rafferty, for your very, very kind uh, uh, email and, and or your very kind message on Twitter and your good wishes. Firstly, over to Jennifer O'Mara, who is a film digital media academic in Trinity. Uh, and Jennifer says, I was interested in Jennifer's point uh, that our online interactions can be less engaging because we don't have a director shaping these mediated experiences or an editor ensuring uh, we see what we need to from the speaker. Uh, I'm wondering how this might relate to strategies such as RTE School Hub television programming based on Anne's survey uh, of teaching remotely, might more attention to performance and storytelling as opposed to information delivery help with virtual teaching and even meetings. So why don't we start with you, Jennifer, move to you, Anne, and then Vinny and Lorna uh, will come in. Um, so uh, Jennifer, you wanna kick the, uh, begin? Yeah. Yeah, I'll make a brief comment. I think the question is really more to towards Anne, but I do think there's a really interesting, I mean, when we think about, you know, the way we can adapt to technological change, I always think of the, 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 the origins of film and the way, you know, when Lumiere's film of the train coming in, you know, there's these potentially apocryphal, Jennifer O'Mara would probably know, um, stories of people seeing the train on the screen and, and, and just being gripped by fear at this, this, this thing hurtling at them. And, you know, I think the equivalent now is when we have people who put the, the backgrounds on their Zoom, which drives me crazy because 
they don't have Weta Workshop behind them to fix all of the little glitches in it. So I think there's a lot of ways in which um, we can learn, if we're going to engage via screens, we can learn from what happens in the industry, which is all about engaging with screens. But I'd love to hear what Anne says about, uh, about the educational potential of that. Thank you, Anne. Yeah, I suppose um, it, uh, it would be useful here to have my colleague Erica Piazzoli, who uh, has written a lot on pedagogy as performance. And so that, that kind of integration of performance with teaching and learning. Um, so very definitely storytelling can be a really fundamental part. I'm working with a PhD student on uh, storytelling in the, in the early years classroom and so on for language uh, teaching and learning. Very definitely there's, there's a space for that. That isn't to say that every, every educator is naturally that way inclined or that that would, would necessarily be the way that they can engage. I think the important part here is that most people who are educators, they, they work well within their classroom as, as an actor might on stage, sensing what's happening, you know, in the moment, what needs to change, what's the pace, uh, you know, where people are coming on and off task and so on. Um, and that is really hard to do online. It's hard to get that sense, but we do need to move towards developing that understanding because, and I, I think, uh, I mean, some of the, the comments that came in from teachers about essentially just missing their students, just no, you know, the lack of, of humanity in the contact, but that's very much an old, you know, it's, this was first generation edu educational technology it was all about the content uh, and, you know, educational technology itself has moved on a long way, but um, to bring uh, educators into that space, you know, it's quite a short turnaround from one day to the next, uh, but that's definitely where the professional development needs are uh, in bringing those relationships, in managing to bring relationships into an online environment. Thanks very much, Anne. I don't know if Vinny or Lorna want to come in here or we take another question. Vinny, do you want to say something? Very briefly, just there's two things, two points I'd make. On the direction aspect, I think that it's certainly a case where, where educators at the moment don't always feel they're in control of the technology and particularly aware of how to form it and change things on the fly. Um, whereas in a class, you can, and I think it was a point that Jennifer made about, about Zoom, you have to almost anticipate what might happen to plan for it before that. And technology is clunky that way and having a director in the background who actually can spot things happening and change things makes it an awful lot uh, better. Um, the second part is performance and storytelling. I, I do think that's a huge part of education. It's, and I do think that it's, it's um, something which, again, in, in my research in the area of personalization, we found that actually changing the stories to fit the individual to make the point that they need has much more effect than all the gizmos around it and the, the animations and whatever. So, so you know, there, there's, there's, there's absolutely something there uh, as well. But, that's my only point. Thank you. Lorna? It, it just strikes me as a kind of parallel with, you know, when a lot of healthcare went online, you know, when they started to, you know, I was working at the Mayo Clinic and we did an awful lot around kind of e-health, I guess, or kind of telemedicine and just the kind of anxiety around what was considered a kind of substandard quality of care, you know, that and, and that, you know, a kind of abstracted care was like a, a bad care. And yet, the, and the sentiment around trying to preserve a lot of rituals and cultures and trying to kind of recreate what was, you know, what was familiar. And I think over time, as it matured as a technology and as you kind of decoupled the value from the tradition and the rituals, 
we are able to get a lot more understanding about the kind of benefits in telemedicine in terms of access and convenience. And also what happens is in a kind of digitally mediated space, I think this was mentioned, and I think you may have mentioned this, in a digitally mediated space, there is a capacity to pull you know, content into that space that's harder to share. And there's a way, and also what was really helpful in, in healthcare was that you were documenting and recording. So an awful lot of value in terms of knowledge capture happened because care was being delivered mediated by technology. So as the technology matured, the real value started to emerge, but it took you know, 10 years of people trying to preserve and ritualize and be very nostalgic for what good care looked like. Lorna, just while we're in the health space, there's a question here from Martin uh, from OPA Mind. Uh, we're in the mental health space with an AI-based approach to the workplace mental health agenda. How much attention is being given to coding bias in relation to creating uh, human-oriented AI technology? I don't know if you want to start with that, uh, uh, Lorna, or maybe that's one for Vinny. Um, I don't know, I mean, I, certainly from my experience uh, when I was with the doc is that the kind of whole idea of unconscious bias is, you know, a real, you know, there's a real sensitivity to, you know, there's bias inherent in data that's used, you know, if you have a data pool or, or lake, um, you often don't know what kind of biases are inherent and, you know, because humans are very biased. And so the knowledge that we've created and the things that we kind of capture and have considered knowledge or, or kind of evidence have themselves inherent bias and when you start to kind of aggregate knowledge together we used to talk about zombie biases where they have babies together you know? so it's like a whole new brand of bias that we didn't know was possible um so i think vinnie's definitely more qualified but i know that there is you know this idea and there was something about i remember hearing about um something like algorithmic cruelty being a term that was used you know to kind of think about you know, the ultimate kind of consequence of a bias and and how it can really um, discriminate against certain people. Vinny? Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it is a real issue in terms of, of, of uh, on the agenda across the board now, in terms of AI and its fairness. Um, the bias can, you know, typically be introduced through the data that you're, that you're training the systems on or algorithmically in the actual algorithm you're choosing, which might have uh, a ponderance in a particular direction. Um, there's quite a lot of work that's going on now in terms of standardization in this space, uh, particularly in the area of AI and trustworthiness. Um, framework have begun, you know, has been agreed at the EU level, at, you know, across nations. Uh, it's 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 being uh, rolled out across um, now as a, a an actual international standard, uh, not just an EU standard. Um, and now there's groups drilling down into particular aspects: trustworthiness, transparency, all of those particular issues and consent become part of that. And particularly if you're going to uh, begin to move that into the healthcare sector, um, that becomes really important. So, so that actually is something which is it's a hot topic at the moment and actually part of the research. I know within ADAPT Centre, we, run the, we were, were coordinating the trustworthiness uh, aspect. Um, um, but there's other centres in, in Ireland and elsewhere who are focusing in on this and it has to be an international collaboration. So, so that one is, is, is actually a, quite a hot topic at the moment and, and what I'll get is number of uh, URLs shared um, uh, just, to, just to let people know where that's going. Thanks very much Vinny and it actually picks up on a question that Giovanna has that relates to this so I'm just going to put it in now and then obviously Jennifer and feel free to come in. So Giovanna who's in the hub she says thanks for the amazing talks 
I'd love to hear about diversity in the process of technology development. Um, as we're still taking hold and learning the profound societal changes needed to deal with long-standing problems highlighted by the Me Too and the Black Lives uh, Matter movements. We know both women and black minorities are severely underrepresented in tech companies. So maybe just to take that conversation around diversity a step further. I, again, I don't know who'd like, Jennifer, you're nodding your head. Do you want to get in there? <laughs> yes, yes, I do. Because um, Lorna mentioned the idea that bias comes in through the data and then Vinny extended that to the data, da the bias can coming in to AI systems from the algorithms. But there's been a certain amount of work that's been done that also shows that actually you can find bias in a lot of places coming into AI systems. One of the places this bias really comes in is the teams that create the software. And of course, we're talking about, you know, technology changes fast. So you tend to have younger ages, you tend to have the white, you tend to have the male, the white or Asian. So there's, there's a, there's a, um, almost a, there's a narrow culture that's creating the software. And we say that the human's being left out of the loop. I mean, I think that that's, and the technology speed versus the human speed. This is a point that Lorna made very well, but actually the technology is showing the mind of a certain kind of human. It's just that that's not diverse enough. And this is something where I think we can make a huge change by bringing, bringing, encouraging, promoting, and whether that means really the way we, we train computer scientists, whether that means the way, um, we, we regulate, whether that means the way we encourage hiring, what kinds of, you know, there's all sorts of ways that could be addressed, but I think it's absolutely critical that that aspect somehow finds a way, because otherwise we're still going to find these biases creeping in, even if we are overseeing the data, even if we are overseeing the algorithms. Yeah, thanks very much, Jennifer. Does anybody else want to come in on that one? And please go ahead um, and ask the next question. Yeah, I suppose maybe just to, um, to talk about design processes uh, that, that, you know, using having a, a very, I assume this is part of what you'd be doing, but in, in you know, design-based um, learning methodology for research, you, you'd, you'd have your, you know, you're working from your, with your user group, but you have to work so hard to get the user group to build the trust and build the relationships that, you, you know, that, that you can, that you're working from the problems of your users as opposed to, you know, that they're your starting point as opposed to, and there you can have diversity. I mean, I'm working on a project at the moment and uh, the diversity that we need is, we're, it's very easy to find mothers. It's an education project and uh, very hard to find dads, you know, in this to, to engage. And so, you know, different areas might have different um, diversity biases as well. Yeah. And maybe move on to the next question, um, which is from Richard Millwood. I'm not sure, Richard, where you're joining us from, but he says, I enjoyed Lorna's talk and the others, but wondered why we haven't heard about commercialism, capitalism, politics, and human power. Uh, it seemed technology is seen to be the agent rather than the power, rather than powerful human interests, using, misusing technology. Thank you for your question, Richard. Um, I don't know who'd like to, I'm sure you all have something to say about that one. Uh, uh, anybody want to kick that one off? Lorna, will, do you want to start? I'll try. Um, it, this is probably a terrible thing to say, but having spent my career in the States, it reminds me of what people say about, you know, was it guns don't kill people, people kill people. You know, it's this principle about the, the technology and the use of it. Um, I think, I mean, it's, um, I think it's true, you know, I mean, tech, I, I, I would argue that 
authors, technology is, I mean, it, it's hard to separate us from it. I tried to, I maybe tried to emphasize that in, you know, in my, in my nine minutes was that we have this really kind of love hate relationship with the things we build and they express the best and the worst of us, right? You know, I think there's an awful lot of the kind of things that come out through the things we choose to build and adopt and the nature of how we use things. And then you can't really separate them from who we are. I mean, the choices we make as cultures, the things that we adopt at scale, the things we choose to outsource, um, the, the things that we allow happen that the environment, I mean, what we kind of, the trade-offs we make that, and you know, they're all choices that we make. And I think our technology is an expression of a, a set of trade-offs that we've made. And I don't really think we should kind of think, think about it as being something separate to us. And so I don't feel that it's terribly binary about is it the technology's fault or is it the human's fault? I mean, clearly we, we have this like innate curiosity, a capacity to plan and build. We are, you know, we are obsessed with novelty and change. We're a little bit nervous about everything, kind of obsessive, um, you know, and we're competitive. And, you know, so there's a lot, there's a kind of a set of things that are kind of human characteristics that manifest in the things that we build. And so I don't know if it's ever a case of which is to blame. I think it's the relationship we have with these things that we build. Thank you. Vinny. Oh. That's it. Yeah. Oh, Sorry, for a minute. A horrible moment. I thought we'd lost you. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I think that the... It's certainly that the technology can be an agent. I think that one of the aspects is that technology can also enable business models. And it's that um, duality that can cause some of the difficulties. Like one of the particular things which, which, you know, which we kind of lament now is that when we as, as the web developed, there wasn't an economic model under it. So the only economic model that could be supported was advertising. And so you've, you've, what you've seen is a huge influence in terms of the technology that got developed was being paid for through advertising. Therefore, the, the content stopped being the product you were. You know? um, and, and that's kind of shaped a lot of things and, and so forth. And we're trying to bring that back in a, in a sense with, the, with, with the, the standards around privacy, the standards around um, uh, the, the consent, and what that means, GDPR is the first step in that. Um, and of course, when that came out, everyone was talking about it's going to be impossible to work with, it won't work at all. Um, and now when it's been adopted, people are working with it and it's now becoming global. So you know, that's, sometimes that there, there needs to be some rules put in place to protect us. Um, so I think that the, 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 there's certainly a case that a technology can be neutral. It depends on how you use it. But also, I think business models can can drive a technology in a particular way. Yeah. I don't know if Jennifer or Anne, do you want to come in here, Jennifer? Yeah, I'd love to, Jane, because um, you know there's there's more and more voices talking about how technology development, in particular around AI, needs to move towards developing a or adopting a precautionary principle. You know, the whole kind of first do no harm, and of course, there's lots of voices saying that that will slow down innovation. Laura could Laura could comment on that at length. Um, but one of the things I think of is that um, I heard a, a statement the other day, you know, you've probably heard this, this phrase, you know, the software or the web ate the world. And when it, and the corollary that is not said, and this is what this person was saying, was that when it ate the world, it ate all the world, the good stuff and the bad stuff. And I think a lot of the times when we see technologies that, you know, you see this kind of initial flourishing 
and then you see a pullback as you know as troll you know as cyberbullying comes out of the kinds of open connections you have all these kind of you see the negative effect later and i think that's the, the bad bit of what software ate the world and so and this is one of the things really interesting in the daria event talking to um courtney grile she was the theater practitioner he worked with and she really brought some amazing stuff and one of the things she said was the whole idea that you can mute everybody in the meeting that bothers me because that's power and that's like taking people's voice away I hadn't thought about that, but the whole idea that, well, of course, sometimes you just need to get people to shut up because their dog is barking and they're just not behaving. It's kind of a very, it's almost an aggressive attempt to manage what might be bad behavior, what be minor bad behavior, might be mistaken behavior. And those things get sort of punished and, and you know, the, the, the way in which bad behavior sort of tends to replicate itself and turn into tools and turn into management it really means we get something that's that's kind of for the worst of us. And so that's where we tend to go. So it is, I think, about that symbiotic relationship of how we sort of manage towards something that, unfortunately, sometimes we have to manage towards the worst. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, there's a question for you, and particularly here. So unless you want to comment on that one, maybe I can take a fresh one from Jerry Dunn. Um, and his is foregrounding human beings and integrating them seamlessly into worthwhile educational experiences requires a robust educational philosophy. What sort of input do you see philosophers of education making to this agenda? So I suppose that one particularly maybe for you, Anne, but there's another sort of education question for the whole panel from Owen O'Shea. It says, does anyone on the panel or in the audience uh, know of a particularly comprehensive website or source for the following? Research and best practice guides regarding the development of online courses. Um, and Jennifer may actually have ideas there, but Anne, can we start with you? Sure, and uh, hello, Jerry. Uh, good to see you here. He's one of our um, PhD graduates and doing great things out there in the world, a philosopher of education. Um, so Jerry, it, there, it, the baseline, I mean, in terms of philosophy of education, what are we doing it for? Uh, what, you know, what's the goal of it? Uh, that underpins everything, I suppose, in terms of what's going to happen in the classroom, what, what we're trying to achieve. Um, I suppose sometimes it can feel maybe that it, that, that perspective gets a little bit lost, but I, I think we continue to try and keep that, certainly in Ireland, they certainly try, in terms of educating teachers or whatever, you still try to keep that underpinning of, you know, what is it all about and what is what is the what is the goal uh, uh, so i think there is definitely always a place for philosophy of education in terms of whether it's online or not uh, in terms of what we're doing in education um as regards the second question actually around around resources um so learnabate is actually a, a good place to go for that i know they're at the moment um developing kind of some they're working with the the language um school sector in Ireland supporting, you know, in collaboration with Enterprise Ireland, supporting them, because obviously that's a sector that's been very, very heavily hit by um, COVID shutdowns uh, and they're supporting them to move online. So that's certainly one place to look. Uh, I'm really bad with um, remembering names, so <laughs> I wouldn't remember the references here, but if I, when I think of some, I'll write them up. Thanks very much. Jennifer, any recommendations there in terms of what you've come across in the context of Daria? 
Well, you know, actually, I would hesitate to say anything because, um, you know, education, educational technology is really a, a, a space that is quite particular. So if you're looking for something generic, I would know my own discipline. And maybe that's one of the problems we face is that um, the, the kind of the knowledge sharing about what works, what doesn't work has a tendency to, to stand in the, in the, the, the silos. Yeah, I think everybody is scrambling, though. Vinny, have you got the silver bullet? And it's not a total bullet, but it's, it's a problem I've come across a lot working in the area of education technology. The truth is there isn't one site which brings it all together. Um, what, what's happened is that it's been kind of uh, segregated into those who are looking at VLEs and virtual language and, and that sort of environment. Those who are looking at simulation-based learning. And it, and it tends to have, you have these islands of really good practice. There was quite a good um, overview by De Freitas back in oh, the desktop survey of, of educational technology. It, it's, it's about five, seven years, 10 years old now, but it's still actually quite a good source of, so this is the landscape. And now from that, I can uh, percolate down and begin to look at the different areas because there isn't one overlap, overarching theory of education that connects all of the different approaches because they are different. And there's some of them are based on slightly different philosophies, different theories of learning and so forth. So th there isn't a one ring to rule them all. It's, it's, it's a case of understanding the context of which you're, go you're going to be operating and then look at the, the relevant theory. Mm. Lorna, no, no, that's terrific. Um, I, maybe, unless Lorna wants to come in here, we'll skip on to the next uh, uh, question, um, uh, which is from Jack Holmes in Ashbourne in County Meath. Uh, he says products such as Zoom can collect large data sets from which can it can develop profiles of individuals that would be helpful in, say, assisting in improving communication skills, subject to privacy and user control aspects of uh, 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 a course. Has there any work been done on this yet? I've absolutely no idea. Uh, Vinny, can you so, answer that? Yes. Yeah, so, so, so. I can't speak for Zoom specifically. Um, I mean, it's obviously grown hugely in the last uh, six months. But overall, absolutely, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of techniques that have been used in both to analyze the words, you know, the, the, the spoken dialogue that's been that, that's, uh, generated over uh, conferencing, being able to identify the speakers, being able to identify the context and, and pulling out meaning and entity relationships and, and, and then uh, so forth. Um, as well as the visual clues, so analyzing the video, looking at the signals, looking at the uh, gestures, the tone, all of those things. So, so machine learning is, is working on those. Um, where the issue becomes is that the severe privacy and um, um, ethical issues around this. So the, um, being able to arbitrarily use it or share it becomes, you know, I mean, people talk about the big, these big data lakes. But some of them are just toxic because you know you really don't want to be be learning from them because you don't have the rights to do it and you shouldn't be doing it so um the it, it's a it's about understanding that um i know certain companies have so that you're when you click on the you know how many people actually read the terms and conditions when they're uh, using a website or whatever it's, it's, it's really quite appalling but um they're designed to be very convoluted um and I think that we have to have a more uh, informed conversation about what we mean by consent in terms of it being used and what can be used for and our own abilities to control it. So under GDPR, we have a lot more um, 
legal basis for that, but it's still an issue. So the answer is the technology is developing that we can actually mine that information in many, many different ways. The issue then becomes much more humanist uh, discussion around, well, what are the ethical ways of doing this for what purposes and to empower whom? There are lots of nodding heads there. So um, thanks for that. Great. That's a great response, Vinny. We're coming towards the end of two questions, though, that I'm going to throw out and just see what you make of them. They're very big and broad ones, but one from Nicholas Johnson, who's in the School of Creative Arts at Trinity. He says, how do the panelists view the political question of who controls the enormous amount of data generated by our recent future spike in online activity? In the education sector, do you believe that the greatest risk is government intervention? Or is the problem of this century more likely to be dealing with monopolies by a small number of major tech firms that increasingly act transnationally? So that's a long question, but that's from Nick. And then the, I've got one from Angie Butler, uh, formerly of The Hub, uh, now of Intel. Um, and Angie, great that you're with us this evening. I am going to shorten your question. So she refers to a wonderful post-humanist scholar called Rosie Bredotti. Uh, and I'm not going to go into the details of what Rosie argues, but I am going to ask just the key question, which is given the global crises we are witnessing at the moment, do the panelists believe we are, at a, we are at a new point of thinking about the human? That's a really big, broad question. Given the global crisis, are we at a new point of thinking about the human? I'm gonna maybe just go across the panel and get you to maybe respond to those two. And then if anything else that you'd like to say, and Jennifer, maybe can we start with you and we'll just go in the order that you spoke, if that's all right. Sure. Um, yeah, I really want to start with with Nick's point about who's going to benefit from the data, because I think that's a crucial point that we don't think about enough. Um, and, you know, the, the short answer is probably Alphabet, Facebook, you know, Amazon, it's going to be the people who have the data. And that's a real shame. And sometimes we don't see that. But an example that I was involved in a project um, looking at was about a machine translation for Latvian because a lot of machine translation relies on having access to data in that language. And of course, small companies can't get that data because that data isn't in public places, it's in private hands. That doesn't mean that those companies are ever gonna do anything for Latvian. And this is one of the things that's really kind of painful about it is the people who can really innovate on around that data sometimes can't get access to it. So I think, you know, the sad truth is probably not the people who really can do the good things with it, but maybe there's a way that we can push for change in that direction. Um, and as for whether we're looking at a, a, a new time for the human, I, I, I really don't necessarily, I don't know, I'm not sure. I'm really interested in the core of the humans that don't change with technology. I'm interested in the way that we are still people sitting around a fire telling stories. You know, so, so to me, what's interesting is not how we're changing, but how we're still the same. So I suppose maybe yes, but let's not forget the other stuff as well. Great, thanks very much, Jennifer. Vinny. Uh, yeah, so um, I suppose the first thing I'd, I'd say is the, some of the beneficiaries will be the people who own the data. Um, and, you know, as Jennifer points out, that could be some of the larger companies. Um, but I would also say that there is some difficulties in releasing that data, even if you wanted to allow other people to work with it, 
because it can be identifiable, in which case they would become liable for it. So there's a, it, it, there's a whole series of issues that, that, that goes into this. Um, but I do think that there is a danger that those who have the data will be able to develop the next generation tools and those who don't, won't. And we, we end up that in, in that situation. We've got to be careful we don't do that. I also believe in the fact that, you know, um, maybe I'm an optimist, but, you know, technology tends to react to barriers. And if a barrier is that we need to have these oceans of data to do AI, what's happening at the moment in AI is people talk about attentive AI, which is actually doing more with less. Answering the question, well, can I use a basis of it, generate synthetic data and learn from that and then be able to. So I think that, you know, it, it's a monopoly, but it's, it's not necessarily a monopoly that will, will always be um, the defining feature. Um, and I think that, you know, technology has it as a way of moving on. I think that the other part is from the humanist side is we do need to begin to become much more uh, understanding of the debate around data, its governance and its sharing, uh, and the need to share it for research purposes. Um, uh, in terms of, you know, think about, you know, whether it be uh, uh, being able to solve problems in terms of pandemics or, or other um, um, challenges of humanity. The second part is, uh, you know, the, the part that about changing human, I think that there is an evolution going on in, with, with technology. And I think that I would always try and think about technology, about how it empowers a, an individual. Um, and I think what sometimes happens is that people get focused in on what the technology can do rather than what the technology can do for you. And it's the for you part that becomes really important. Um, I think that's one of the ways in which we begin to see that as enterprises and as researchers and so forth, we begin to see actually this new way is a great way of developing new solutions that are unique and but that are better. We begin to move that way. And that's where you kind of sh lean a little bit and tilt the, the, the boat to turn. Um, I think, you know, that is certainly something which I, I think that it, it, we are seeing in, in international research. Thanks very much, Vinny. Anne? Uh, yeah, I suppose to talk to Nick's question, I'm, you know, we've all been taking up the aspect of the data and um, I don't know that anyone has touched too much on the role of, of large scale government bodies in this, so or government or whatever institutional bodies in this. So I know in terms of language data and especially for like uh, poor, poorly resourced languages like the Albanians and the Latvians of this world, um, the the European Union certainly they have a it's called ELRA the language resource but the, there's a real push to gather data for languages that are poorly resourced and I think there's a there's a place there and that is ethically sound in terms of where it comes from um, you know we all know Google Translate has got a lot better because Google is harvesting every word that's spoken on the web for the last ages you know so it it, it is getting better but uh, you know so we have we have that moment in time where data any it seemed like anyone could have it and and governments trying to gather that together into balanced corpora that people can then use you know so i i do think we can't forget the role of research funding and um institutions in making what we need available in an ethically sound way um as far as the other question goes uh, i've been talking with people a bit about this lately and 
partly, you know, humans in a way, we all have a bit of a short memory. You know, we have a crisis and then it passes and then, you know, whatever, let's move on. But uh, I think one thing that could, uh, I don't know that it'll change humanity, but it might be, a, a, there's a certain amount of grounding. I think, I, I don't know about you, but the, the extent to which I miss or still miss a hug is, I wouldn't have believed it possible, <laughs> you know, and just that feeling we are grounded, we are human, you know, so we are connect, we are biological, as Lorna had said, you know, we, we're, um, we're physical beings and, and I don't know how long that feeling is going to last, but, um, but I think that might be a short term, if not a long term. Thanks very much, Anne. Lorna, last but not least. Oh, thanks. So <clears throat> maybe I'll just respond to, was it Rosie's question? Yeah, uh, it was Angie's, yeah. Angie, sorry. Um, I, I, you know, I, I guess I'm, I probably worry a little bit about how, ice, how polarizing and isolating technologies become. I think, you know, it tends to, when I, I even think about the kind of um, <clears throat> vacuums and bubbles that we create in terms of reinforcing ideas ourselves and that we kind of gravitate towards um, you know, communities that are like us and that there's this kind of neo-feudalism emerging. And I think technology kind of propagates a lot of self-fulfilling um, this kind of echo chamber effect. And I, you know, I think that there's, um, it's very, it, it can really exclude and it can really kind of, it can kind of protect you from what's really happening. It can kind of make you immune to an awful lot of things. Uh, I think what's happening in the States, I mean, you know, I think maybe Jennifer, you have family there as well, but I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking what's happening in the States right now. Um, and I think there's a, it's, it's a, it's a, obviously a response to like, you know, really tragic historic inequity and a, just a persistent inequity. And I think that I do think that tech, you know, people say the future's arrived, it's just not equally distributed. And I think there's an awful, I know it's such a cliche, but I think that there's a lot of advantage and that technology brings and not because of what it does, but it just because it, it creates vacuums of power and it creates kind of elite. Um, and I think it's more, it becomes you know, who owns the tools. And I, again, just to the reference of the data and ownership, I, I'm as worried about the kind of behaviors we embody through the technology we use versus the exhaust, the data exhaust that we create. I think that there's both the, the kind of risk around data that we generate that's being misused or appropriated but i also think there's an inherent kind of we are embodying and behaving a certain way through the tools we use that, that irrespective of the data we ourselves are really changing because of these tools um you know as as kind of as humans thank you that's the note on which to end i think lorna uh before we thank our absolutely amazing panelists just a few very few quick announcements obviously we are launching the human plus program tonight we would love um, uh, uh, people who might be interested in being collaborators, uh, partners in industry, cultural institutions, NGOs, uh, CSOs, government departments, please get in touch. The details are on the website. That's humanplus.ie. Um, we'll actually be looking for our first fellows, our first cohort of those 18 fellows that Vinny mentioned. That uh, will go live on the 31st of August. Uh, obviously, uh, we want amazing, an amazing cohort to be coming working on this fabulous program. Uh, just two quick announcements. The academic term is coming to an end, but we still have a couple of events. On the 16th of June at five o'clock, we've got uh, Ulysses Pandemic and Social Distancing. So that's uh, Tuesday the 16th. And then on Tuesday the 30th, 
we've got Unlocking the Archives with Beyond 2022. And of course, Vinnie uh, mentioned that flagship project uh, uh, earlier. So just a few thank yous uh, to end the evening. Um, as always, I want to thank the phenomenal team that made uh, uh, this evening happen, both at ADAPT and at the Hub. Uh, so uh, uh, I'm going to name them because it's the last opportunity I'll get thank to thank them publicly. Katrina, Emily, Giovanna, and for this evening, especially Aoife and Francesca, who really worked so hard. And then we've had amazing support uh, from Lucy um, and Kieran in the ADAPT team. Um, I'd like to thank you, the audiences. Um, you have been with us this evening, but you've been, many of you have been with us over the years. It's been an absolute privilege having these opportunities to have these conversations with you. As I said at the outset, it is my last behind the headlines, but the series will continue in the autumn, and I very much hope that you'll continue uh, to join us. Um, last but not least, I'd like us to thank our phenomenal panellists who have done just such an amazing job uh, this evening. Um, and I think we should do that in uh, the customary way. Uh, and then I'm going to simply wish you all good night. So from wherever you are, here on the porch, bedrooms, dining rooms, kitchens, um, uh, stay well, everybody, and have a, a very, very good summer. Uh, I think everybody uh, deserves the rest and we look forward to seeing you at the Trinity Long Room Hub again uh, in September. So for now, if you could join me in thanking our panellists. Good night. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.